Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back to Hashing Out, everyone. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, with my trusted co-host, Colin Couchet. What's up, Colin? How you doing? What's up, Colin? How you doing? Oh. Damn it, Corey, you broke, you broke <laughs> I protocol. Broke it. I broke what it. What the fuck? Transaction denied. So when did <laughs> Rejected. No, do it again. Do it again. Do it again. Okay. Do it right. Say hello, everyone, Colin. Hello, everyone, Colin. There you go. I did not have that voice inflection, so you broke it. Uh, anyway, today we're t- we're bringing back Logan Bruchet. Is it Bruchet? Bruch? How do you say your last name? Forget. It's, well, it's Bruchy, but probably Bruchy. That's what it was. I knew, I knew it was wrong. Yes. yes. Uh, bringing you back that's on. Right. We had you on a while ago, uh, talking about kind of crypto economic primitives and the and the stuff you were doing there. And since then, you've been quite busy, uh, building quite a bit and trying to apply that stuff to real-world applications. So uh, for the uninitiated audience, why don't you give them a quick introduction to kind of who you are, and uh, we'll, then we'll start talking about what, what you're doing. Sure. So um, my origin story with crypto is that uh, when I went to DevCon 3, I think it was, I wrote a contract called a burnable payment which we can get into in a bit, but um, that was sort of my intro into smart contracts and game theory. And um, and then our last uh, episode, we talked a, bit, a little bit about crypto economic primitives and the academy I was trying to set up. And now I'm working on, well, I'm, I'm a, in a team called Team Toast, and we're working on basically trying to bring the burnable payments uh, game theory to market to make an, uh, an unkillable exchange uh, between fiat currency, any fiat currency, and uh, well, and die specifically. Of course, the hard part is getting into crypto. Once you're into crypto, you can get into any other crypto. So, and that you know that, that's kind of the the uh, the Achilles heel of crypto as we see it. And so, we think we can solve the problem with these burnable pay, uh, payments as the uh, fundamental sort of um, engine underneath what we're calling die hard. And that's D A I hard. You know, pretty <laughs> good play on words there. Quality um, pun. Yeah, and then uh, our, yes, that's right. And uh, what we're currently focused on right now is getting a DAO up with, of course, a token sale, uh, which we call Foundry. Um, and then another, so there's three big concepts here. One is Die Hard, which we can talk about, which I think the game theory there is interesting by itself. The other thing is Foundry, which is the DAO that we sort of want to house Die Hard in. So we aren't um, personally targetable anymore for the maintenance, if you catch my drift. And then the third concept is Zimdai, which was basically the culmination of two months of market research in Zimbabwe to look at, uh, well, basically two questions. The first one is, you know, can Dai adoption in Zimbabwe actually help the people there, like like we would like to believe, being cryptozealots ourselves? And secondly, if it can, how can you realistically bootstrap that, given that uh, cryptocurrency is extremely complicated and nobody seems to know about it? Um, especially in Zimbabwe. So 
that's sort of the overview. Um, and uh, there's there's a lot to talk about. Uh, but what what I'll just ask, what piques your interest? Where where should we go first? I'd say let's just start from the beginning. What's a burnable payment? How does that tie into what Die Hard is? Sure. Okay. So burnable payment and the, the simplest version, which is the contract I wrote before I went to that first DEF CON, is basically you have a uh, a payer and a recipient, and those are decided upon in advance. And the payer puts money into this burnable payment, and the, the burnable payment will only ever release money to the recipient, but there's an option as well for the payer to just burn the entire amount. So uh, it's sort of, you can think of it as a last resort to punish any attempted scams. So like, uh, you know, if I want to, I don't know, sell anything, um, I, but I don't trust the person that I'm selling to, uh, they could open up a burnable payment and put the money inside of that burnable payment. And then I can know that they for sure are committed to spending the money because there's no way they're going to get it back. There's no refund policy. The only choice they have is to burn meaning destroy the currency or release it to me. So that, that allows me to trust them now. And, uh, and then when I, when I'm, because I'm now in the payment, the payer actually can trust me because they know that if I try to screw them, they're just going to burn the payment. And they know that I know that as well. So um, it's just a very simple way to solve trust without involving a third party. So it's, you could also think of it as a, an alternative to escrow where you don't need to solve the problem of how do you find the, that third party and sort of guarantee they're not on the side of you know one party or the other. Does that make sense? Yeah. So how is that tied into Die Hard? What did you do different to make to, to make Die Hard a thing? Like what is exactly Die Hard and how does it bring in burnable payments? Sure. So Die Hard is is one of many any attempts you could do to, to bring the burnable payment game theory to a market and actually solve a real problem. Um, and the problem we're trying to solve is, I mean, ultimately it's just entering and exiting crypto. And the way we do that is to say, okay, um, the, the person who puts the money into this, this uh, burnable payment, which you could now call a trade, they put their die into this burnable payment. Um, and they, once you do this now with this version of the burnable payment, um, the payer or the person who puts the money in is decided, but anybody else can come into the payment if they want, as long as they also put down uh, some die themselves. It's currently set to one third of the payment amount. So, um, and then that gets listed on a marketplace. So anybody can, can join that payment. And uh, when that second person joins the payment, then they become the, uh, the buyer of this cryptocurrency. And, um, and there's a few phases to this burnable payment that's sort of, um, it just makes the, the basic concept of a renewable payment a little bit safer and a little bit more tailored to currency trade. Um, and, uh, and you end up facilitating a crypto to fiat trade between two people without a third party. And because it's all based on smart contracts, it can, you know, this can be used throughout the world. Um, and even if it's illegal. And so just to sort of go over that again with the particular use case of, uh, of currency trade. So I want to sell 10 die. Uh, let's, and let's say I've landed actually in a new country. I don't have any ex other exchanges set up and I really just want cash to pay for my hostel night. So once I land in the airport, um, I could go to die hard, put my 10 die or let's say 50 die. Cause I'm, I just landed somewhere. So I, I want to have a bit of uh, spending money. So I put my 50 die in there and I say, look, I'm at the airport, meet me at the airport um, and give me, you know, $50 worth of whatever the local currency is. 
Um, and maybe I would include a little bit extra because I am asking them to meet me at the airport and it is up to me what I'm actually selling this die for, you know, how much and, and which currency as well. And, uh, and the way the burnable payment game theory actually sort of um, works is that for somebody else to pick up that offer, you know, I'm trying to sell die. So if they want to come buy my 50 die, they have to put a third of that amount of die into the payment. So they would have to put in, I don't know, what is that? Something like 13 die or something like that into the payment. Once they do that, um, they are irrevocably part of, they, they are the buyer of crypto and there's no going back. I can't now get my 50 die out and they can't get their uh, 13 point whatever die out. And if they then do meet me at the airport and give me the $50 of uh, local currency, then it is expected in a game theoretical sense that I would release the payment or, or just never come back, in which case the payment would automatically release. They would get the 50 die plus their 13 die deposit back. And then I would have the local currency that they, that they gave to me. Um, alternatively, if they are trying to scam me or they're lazy or whatever, and they never show up, now I have the option to burn the 50 die plus the 13 die. So that's 63 die in the payment. And the idea here is that because you can always punish a scam, scams should never actually show up in the marketplace in the first place. So that's sort of the whole run through of, of a life cycle of, of uh, a diehard trade at its core is really just a burnable payment with some so tweaks. Explain to me how it doesn't just shift the scam to the other side of the equation. So instead of the person who um, accepts to offer the service, um, you could actually have people who are just straight up malicious, you know, and don't want that service, you know, just literally just burn as soon as they can. Um, cause, cause some people just want to see the world burn. Like what, what is, doesn't that like just shift the equation? It doesn't actually balance a, a like it's not zero sum here. It's like, it, it's, it, it seems like it just changes who is actually the malicious actor. Yeah. Well, so it's not zero sum. It's, it's mutually assured destruction. And it's interesting you brought up, um, some people just want to watch the world burn. That's a very common criticism we have. I'm not sure it's actually very true. I mean, there are of course movies that portray that, but but I think most people are are not so evil that they'll because because to punish this, you'd actually have to spend your own money. So if I put, and we can express this in both sides of the equation. So let's say I'm the honest guy, I put 50 die down. For someone else to come online and burn that, now they have to actually burn, you know, forfeit $13 of their own. And if I'm just some anonymous guy on the internet, I I it it really seems like, and we've done some experimental testing on this, that people just don't come to to just ruin, you know, it's it's not actually that fun to just go burn a stranger's money, especially if you have to spend your own money. Uh, similarly with me, so let's say I'm the dishonest one and I'm selling, well, I'm saying I'm going to sell 50 die. And the guy does meet me at the airport and he gives me the $50 of local currency. Um, it's actually, well, first, there's a couple of things. First of all, it's easier for me to just never come back to the burnable payment and have it automatically release. And second of all, I've met this guy face to face. Um, it just seems extremely unlikely that I would then go and burn it just, just for, for fun. I, I don't think many people are like that. And then sort of on top of all of that, the, the, um, the application we built uh, has a reputation system as well. So besides all of the game theoretical concerns, when you're looking at an offer on the marketplace to buy or sell crypto, you can actually see how many times they burned or released um, or aborted, which is a which is a different um, different end to the payment. But uh, but yeah, so we have this sort of pretty solid game theory, uh, which makes the assumption that people are rational actors, which of course is an idealistic assumption. But then also we have the uh, the reputation system. 
to where if you if you want to look at this platform as a way to actually make money, you can go there, build a solid reputation, and begin serving customers and making some small profit to do so. Now, do you do some KY? That, by the way, that makes perfect sense. You're absolutely correct. I kind of agree with what you're saying. I just needed to play devil's advocate there. Um, I don't think I would burn $50 to screw somebody over 13. Um, it right. just doesn't make sense. And if the, if the numbers were right, you know, they could measure somebody who's going to engage with your system can measure their risk more, you know, mm -hmm. basically, look, I'm going to get like a huge ROI out of this. He's going to get exactly what he wants. And I'm, I'm going to get what I want in like crypto plus, you know, whatever. All I need to do is say, I'm going to take a little bit of risk, believe this other human being isn't a total douchebag and willing to like burn like his tremendous amount for my little amount. And um, if, as long as that kind of equa equation kind of like balances, it makes sense there where the risk is worth the reward. I think people will participate because if, even if you're like only 1% of people are like weird and will literally burn their own money just to gleefully, you know, giggle as somebody else is pissed off. Um, right. You know, I, I even if 1% or, and that's a high, I think that's a tremendously high amount to expect, but just 1% of those people are like that. Um, you still get a huge ROI from the other 99%. Um, right. So that makes sense to me. Um, uh, so I, I think, I think your system kind of does work and balances out. Um, so yeah, no, I think this is great. Uh, how are you using it in the wild right now? Well, unfortunately we don't have any liquidity. So if you go, I mean, the thing is live, you can, you can go to diehard.io or diehard.exchange. Um, and you can see it, you can try it out either on Coban or on mainnet, uh, but there's no users right now. So the main thing we need to now, we're sort of strategizing about is marketing. So where do we go market this thing? Um, and, and that sort of connects to the whole Zimbabwe market and Zimdai thing. But, uh, but yeah, so, so, I mean, the answer is we really aren't using it anywhere and we're trying to decide where we're going to push it. So what's your, I mean, that's, that's obvious, a, a great way to transition into, uh, the next part of this, but. What's your ideal audience? What is it? What like who needs this, and why would they use this as above like other situations? Yeah, I think the ideal user is is somebody who has no other options to get into and out of crypto, and and you could interpret that different ways. So my example of me landing in a new country I've never been in, I I actually have no other options. I don't know anybody there. It's going to take me weeks to get a bank account and then hook it up to an exchange if it's even possible, which it you know, likely is not. Um, so that would be, you know, a, a traveler with crypto landing in a new place. That would be one customer because they have no other options. Um, another example is Zimbabweans. They, you know, the Zimbabwe used to have uh, an exchange called Galix, but that got shut down by the government. So this could be something that could be launched in Zimbabwe, or I should say marketed in Zimbabwe because it's sort of live everywhere. Uh, and the nice thing is that it can't be shut down because it's, it's, there's no server anywhere. Um, and there's no legal entity that can be pressured. So, um, I mean, again, just in short, anybody who doesn't have any other option, I mean, the game theory is a little scary. You have to deal with the risk of burning your currency. And I think what that means is that the first users will be people who are serious, maybe quite technical, and also maybe, um, with an entrepreneurship kind of bent because they, as you said, I think it was it was Corey that said this. Um, you um, you can you can factor in the risk and charge any premium for whatever the risk is. Uh, and of course, one of the things that we will find out is what exactly that risk is as we get liquidity and users. Um, that'll be interesting in itself, I think, to to see how you know what percentage of payments actually burn. 
Um, but yeah, anyway, back to your original question, just anybody who has no other option, you know, it, it, like, so I'm a US citizen, I have Coinbase, as much as I love Die Hard, obviously, it's my baby, um, I don't have much need of it, because I have an easy way in and out. Uh, and I'm not too concerned with, you know, super supreme levels of privacy. Uh, and which I guess brings me to another whole sector that we could easily target. And that is people who don't want to do KYC because uh, Die Hard does not require any KYC at all. It's just a set of smart contracts and the money's down and and, um, and people can join when and if they want. Why Zimbabwe? What's wrong with them? Like why, 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 why are they a, a group of people that need something that offers this type of service? Why can't they do it there? Sure. So, um, so I wrote a Zim Dive paper, uh, which um, maybe in the show notes, you can put a link yep. to um, a page. It'll just be diehard.info slash, or sorry, diehard, diehard.io slash info. On there, there will be a link to a Zim Dive paper, which I wrote after my two months in Zimbabwe. So the larger answer is in that paper. Uh, but for an answer for here and now, they they suffer under extreme inflation um that's the first thing and then that's just coupled with an incredible abuse a financial abuse by the government uh people will wait for hours in line at a bank get there early before the bank opens to wait in hours or sorry to wait in line four hours and uh just to get a, about three dollars equivalent of currency every day and that's if they're lucky if they get there too late they actually don't get any money because the the bank is out of money uh, the ATMs don't work in Zimbabwe. They have they have this uh, mobile payment system called EcoCash, but but that as well faces the inflation. Um, so there's that's just one big thing is that their current financial system just doesn't work. And and Dai combined with DeFi today actually gives a pretty solid alternative to a first world banking system. You know you. It's a hard sell to a first world person because they already have savings accounts that they can earn, earn interest in. But to a Zimbabwean, that is a, it's not a reality they can access at all. They First of all, they're, if they just hold their money, it devalues incredibly rapidly. And they can't put it into any banking system that, that allows them to accrue interest, let alone you know um, keep its value. So... You know, crypto is building this parallel banking system. Of course, that's been a pitch of it uh, of crypto for a long time. Uh, but lately, with with Dai and with uh, DeFi, it's really I think made a lot of strides towards being able to make that you know sell that claim to regular people. And so it seems to me like Zimbabwe could be an incredible market to get people to jump, you know, leapfrog towards crypto and use Dai as a banking system. And then so to tie it all back to Die Hard, Die Hard is a way that people could enter and exit that system um, without the government really being able to stop it. So, uh, okay, without the government, being, what about, all right, so first off, actually, there's a, there's a couple of things that I really wanna get into here. Um, you're not, you're talking about going into third world countries, but there's a ton of first world applications. Um, and I, I'm kind of curious why you decided to go, why, why you decided to ignore them. Um, is it a user experience issue? Is it a, is, like, what is, what is the concern here? And by the way, what is the overall user experience? How quickly can these payments settle and how confident are you in their settling? Yeah, so there's two questions there. Why don't we target the first world? And the second is, what is the user experience? Um, I'll answer the second first because it's a pretty quick answer. 
Um, and it depends on the liquidity, but let's assume that there are people using this in your area. Um, you could complete a trade in five minutes if both users are paying attention because you it's it's there are essentially three ethereum transactions you have to make the first is to create the offer the second is well for the other person to enter the offer uh sorry there's four the fourth one is to confirm that the payment has been made and then the fourth is to um burn or release the currency or you could never come back and, and the other person could could reclaim it um, so there's four ethereum transactions and the rest of the time really depends on what what method of payment you're demanding um whoever creates the offer defines what the payment method is. So I could say, you know, meet me at this coffee shop between, you know, in, in working hours or whatever, or I could say, wire it to my bank account, whatever it is, that is the main determinant of how long it will take. And so if you are in a dense area with lots of users and, uh, and, and you could say, meet me at Starbucks and give me the $20 and they could show up there in 20 minutes, then the trade could really be completed in, let's say 22 minutes. If you want to add in the, the sort of the, the time of actually making the transactions. Um, so it, it, it can go very fast. And, and I'll, I'll even say a bit more on that, which is I think that as people learn how to use this, and especially as people learn how to make money on this, it will start to feel a little bit like Uber, where you, you come to this system, you put in your request, and it's not an Uber car that shows you up to drive somewhere. It's, it's a guy that brings you cash. And he is acting as a, as a service provider because you have included a bonus, let's say a dollar or two dollars or whatever you need to pay to have him come find you and to do so fast. Uh, and because people can make money on this system, I think that um, with enough uh, adoption, that's that's what the experience would be like. You, you actually feel like you're dealing with service providers or you are the service provider or some mixture um, of the two. So your yeah. first question, um, you know why don't sorry go ahead yeah that's that's kind of what i'm looking for is that it seems like there is like a, a more it's more on demand um like service provider ad hoc service uh thing and i'm thinking okay like who would use this and i i hate to be this guy i don't even know if i should say this on the podcast but like people like prostitutes you know would probably use the shit out of this because it's <laughs> just you know it's just something that you know, it lowers their risk, it lowers your risk, and, you know, it, it's kind of got a little bit of a discovery mechanism in there. I probably shouldn't have said that out loud. But, you know, it's like, it's exactly the kind of scenario that this mitigates. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, this this could be used for some untoward, untoward services as well, you know? Um, could I pay someone to kill my wife using this service? Like, is this something yeah. that, that can be done, you know? Um, it also can, like, for instance, the FBI entrap me with the service somehow. Like, is there, like, there's a lot of interesting implications to this kind of thing. Um, I don't know. Just, just say, just speaking out loud. What's your reaction? Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I'm a bit too honest here, but I think that when you look at the burnable payments themselves, you have an engine for marketplaces that really can't be shut down and can't be policed. Um, I've thought a lot about this. Uh, I, I think, I mean, I think you're not wrong, you know, uh, but I, but something I've realized um, in the past year or so is that you can't actually use it to do immoral things quite so easily because when, with a burnable payment, you run the risk that somebody will pick up the payment just to, just to foil your plans. So the more disagreeable your burnable payment is, the more risk somebody will, will actually put that one third up just to, 
say, okay, I'm going to do it and then not do it. And then you're forced to burn the, burn the currency. So if you, you know, let's, oh, let's go to the that's interesting. So you get like the Christian right sees that it's being used and they've got like Pat Buchanan money hanging around. So they decided right. they're going to troll a particular area or spot, spot troll. You don't even have to like do it very often. You just have to increase that 1% to 10% and it would become right. very risky. You know, the 1%, you know, who just want to see the world burn to the 10% yeah. who just want to see the world burn. And now social consequences balance out the untoward behavior. So, you know, uh, drug deliveries, prostitution, um, those kind of things, they could literally just put down the money and stop stop it from happening. Um, exactly. But there's no there's nothing stopping the person from maybe reposting, but now their risk has gone up. And so their, 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 their uh, collateral will have to drop um and their uh and their asking amount would probably have to increase um to the point right. where it might make the service itself untenable that makes sense my question my question here based on this conversation is how much of all of that metadata is capturable within the system um if, if i were if i were to be we'll call myself like a, a, like a global observer i can somehow capture as much information as available how much could I know mm. and how much how much analytics could I do to figure out like what percentage of burnable payments are being used for this type of thing? How many things are being burned because of some specific entity trying to stop a particular type of behavior in an area? Is that stuff even capturable within the current system? Yes. So, well, to some degree it is. So the when you put a uh, one of these, whether it's a burnable payment or a diehard trade, when you put it out there, you have some, uh, I guess you could almost call it advertisement data or like a title, which says like, okay, I want to buy 50 die for 50 US dollars or whatever it is. That's in clear text on Ethereum. Uh, but then the, when you when somebody can then commits to that payment, there's an encrypted chat function, which does use Ethereum to actually carry the data, but the data itself is encrypted. So only those two people can read it. Uh, but you can still see what, you know, what the smart contract did. You can see how long it was in each phase. There's there's three phases. The first one being the open phase where nobody has committed to it. The second one being the committed phase. And the third one, what we call judgment, which is where the other, you know, one person has claimed that the thing has been done and the other person now has to judge whether it has been done. Anyway, you can see, you know, you can see how long they were, how long they took. You can also see how many messages they sent. And of course you could see in the end whether it was burned or released, which is how we build the uh, reputation data. But the, the the chatting between the two people is encrypted. So, what is the primary point of entry for this? Like, is this a website? Um, are you, I mean, it's a decentralized application, but is this running through a website? Is there mobile options? Like, you know, um, most of my experience would be through a mobile phone for something like this because I probably would use it for the currency exchange value. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. Yes. So yeah, we have, so if you go to diehard.io or diehard.exchange that, well, diehard.io just redirects to diehard.exchange. The app's right there. It does work on mobile. Of course, on mobile, you, so on desktop, you would need MetaMask or Nifty Wallet, some kind of Web3 wallet. And then on mobile, you would need uh, one of these mobile Web3 wallets, which Alpha Wallet is one of my favorites right now. Um, but yeah, you can use those. Um, and uh, the, you know, Again, the only thing you run into is that you'll go there and there's not any other users. So that's what we're going to try to solve next. But uh, but yeah, it's just a website you go to. And then of course you need a Web3 provider. And how do you solve that? Of course, like how, how do you, how do you, how do you drum up? Go on um, podcast. 
<laughs> going on a podcast certainly helps, but like, I I, I yes. been looking at our geographical data from podcast, Zimbabwe is not a large market for us. You need, you need thriving local markets for, I think this to really thrive because it's, it's, it's similar to like a local Ethereum, local Bitcoin, something like that. But there's the, 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 like the mechanics are slightly different so that, uh, your, you don't rely on third-party arbitrators. The, the the incentives themselves kind of push the, the potential correct behavior, a lot of stuff. And so I think you need thriving local markets, which is very hard to do um, globally. So I, like, I, like I think you said, like your goal is to try and push within a certain market that needs it most, that makes sense there. And then, and then, eventually like spread out from that what do you do how do you do that how do you start that yeah it's a good question and it's the one we're focusing on now so i mean to some degree well there's a bunch of answers to the question one answer to the question is get a marketing budget and market it and then while you're doing that actually pivot the product because probably you know our product itself needs to pivot to the market so we need to find that product market fit with both of those changing so that's one answer um, another way to sort of refine the question is I mean, well, as you implied, you, you know, you said that you can't just, well, you didn't really say this, but part of, I think what you implied is you can't just target the world. You actually need to focus and target a particular um, space. And the way we've now rephrased that question is it's not even really about targeting a particular city or country. It's actually about targeting a particular payment network. So do you guys know the apps uh, TransferWise or Revolut? I know Revolut. Okay, so it's, yeah, TransferWise is a similar thing. I've never heard of either of them. It's basically like a mobile bank. I mean, it's, it's a bank that is built to be easily used by travelers. So you don't never need to call a bank. It's all on your phone. Um, and it's extremely easy to get paid and to pay out uh, with these with these apps. They're just, you know, totally, they're not into crypto at all. They're just, they're, you know, a, a, a fairly modern. Yeah, it's modern economy. financial technology. Yes, exactly. So that is a that's an example of a payment network because if we target that and can saturate that to some degree, then anybody with TransferWise or Revolut can come can come to Die Hard and find the trades they want. Uh, and that you know that's not about a country or a particular type of person, aside from maybe travelers. Uh, but I think that's the key question: is what payment network do we target? And in Zimbabwe, for example, the, even that has several different payment networks. So. You know, one is cash of the local currency. Another one is uh, U.S. dollars, which people use quite a bit there, even though it's illegal. Um, and then another one is this EcoCash uh, digital payment system that they have. So you could you could target any of those. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I, I think the answer is you choose one of those and then you get a marketing budget and you go after it and you try to get critical mass. And then as the users come in, you use Google Analytics and and just try to figure out you know, what is the most painful part of the user experience and what do people wish that, you know, that was there that isn't there and then and then target those. So uh, like eBay started as basically a series of links through, I mean, sorry, not eBay, apologize. PayPal started as a series of link shares through eBay um, in order to get people to start paying for um, their, uh, you know, their stuff, uh, they, they didn't really have, a, they were originally trying to attack the US dollar, but they, they really came up with a good system for just basic payments from x.com merging with Peter Thiel's company, um, which I'm blanking on right now. And then they got, pay, they formed PayPal. All they did was just like take these links 
and just people could embed them in their eBay ads and accept payment through those links. And that went kind of viral because nobody else offered that service. Um, there's a lot of services sections available on places like Angie's List, which, by the way, has its own payment system. Um, hmm. Or um, uh, I guess a better example would be Craigslist. Um, is there a thought to an approach where you can make this a one link? Here's my trade. Here's how you get the die even, um, you know, like payment mechanism so that you can literally acquire the die and, um, and pay for the system, uh, pay for the service with your burnable uh, payment all in one step. Well, unfortunately, well, okay. Not directly. I think what you would need to do that is you'd have to get diehard itself to be successful to some subset of users and then have people build on top of it because with diehard itself and with burnable payments in general, it is actually crucial that the user gets that final burn and release decision because if they never see that and it's just assumed that everything went well, then your game theory breaks down and suddenly the scams come rushing in. So I think the way that you would get to that, uh, sort of a, any kind of much more simpler one-click type of thing, is you would have an, uh, a service that was built on top of DieHard and that relied on DieHard's game theory. They provided to the to some end user a one-click solution, and then they, as the company, take a small commission. And for that commission, they monitor the uh, you know the, the actual underlying payment and punish any scams that do come along. Which gets back to the the whole idea of like uh, you know charging more to offset the risk of of punishing scammers. I think it's going to be kind of hard to get people to especially in um, places that have kind of terrible financial infrastructure already that are typically wrought with scams, um, that kind of take advantage of that terrible financial marketplace to put up money to get money. Um, yes. That's, yes. How, how, do you, how do you overcome that? Yeah. So basically, uh, and again, I would, I would say the Zimdi paper has a fuller answer to this, but a big part of the answer... And, and I think this applies to just getting cryptocurrency adoption anywhere is the obstacle is it is complicated to use and there's lots of scary things. Like if, if we just put aside burnable payments for a second uh, and just talk about cryptocurrency, the reality is that if you want to own cryptocurrency now, you either have to trust an exchange, which has its risks, or you have to handle your keys yourself, which has its risks. And you could, in either of those circumstances, suddenly wake up and find out all your money's gone. And that's... That's really intense. So that's the, that's one of the obstacles. And the solution that we come that we came to was that you essentially need ambassadors to that that link regular people to crypto. And these ambassadors uh, know how to use crypto and they know how to expose the value to the users. And and in the case of uh, Zimdai, we call them Zimdai agents. So these agents would be offering not just cryptocurrency, and and they wouldn't be trying to sell the ideological dream of crypto, they would literally be saying things like, look, if you bring me hundred US dollars, I can send that to somebody in South Africa, which by the way, there is no competition for because it's illegal and extremely difficult. Well, the competition is that people could drive over the border with you know, literal physical cash in their car and then risk confiscation. So that's one service you can offer. You can also offer remittance services where the money's coming in from outside and they can and this Zimdai agent would receive the crypto and then disperse local currency. Uh, you could also offer savings accounts. Again, the Zimbabweans don't have, they don't have stable currency. Well, okay, they have the US dollar, which is stable currency, and they have banks, which doesn't use US dollars. So they always have to choose between 
the stable currency or banking services. And DAI can can offer them both at once. And so this agent could basically say like, look, let me help you handle this crypto side. They probably don't even need to mention the crypto thing. They'll just say, look, I have a way where if you give me any kind of currency, I can put it into a savings account for you and sort of be the custodian or uh, a bank manager to some degree for you. And you will have what you could basically pitch is like, this is an international bank account with US dollars that nobody can nobody can take from you. That's the promise of DAI, which these agents, which know how to use crypto and know the risks, can then offer to regular people who don't need to know anything about crypto. So that's how we would overcome that issue. Obvious in, next in question. Yeah, obvious next question of that is, um, how do you keep those agents honest? And how do you keep people from posing as these agents offering the same services, but not providing it? Yeah. So, well, in Zimbabwe, there is a big emphasis on trust and reputation. And I think that's partially because uh, their currency is so unreliable. So they have to fall back on trust. So um, I think it would naturally be that the only people who end up making money as agents are people who are trustworthy. Uh, I think that's already how they gauge different business engagements. Uh, for example, when I was in Zimbabwe, I, I knew this guy who would buy my Bitcoin and give me EcoCash, uh, which is this mobile, this mobile uh, payment system. And, uh, and we were talking over coffee one day, and he was saying that because trust is so important, if he is selling, if he's sort of uh, facilitating a trade between two people, one person wants Bitcoin, the other one wants cash, and he's the guy in the middle, and one guy does not pay up, he will then, out of his own pocket, pay up you know, the guy that was being honest just to maintain his own trust and reputation. So that's how valuable that kind of thing is in Zimbabwe. And uh, I think that you know, just in terms of our strategy, we would just try to find those people who already have uh, a network that trusts them. Uh, but just more generally, if we can get enough momentum to the Zimdai thing, people will sort of naturally come online spontaneously enter this network and they would only be able to do so much business as as the trust they can you know they can garner from their local network part of uh part of this which we we referred to earlier before we started this this podcast via email is uh, like the, the the one of the weaknesses that does exist inside all of the system which is um the development and governance and iterations on all of this uh and whether or not that can be shut down and uh yeah. i'm under the impression you're trying to like dowify that process what, what does that look like and how are you doing that yeah so i'm glad you asked so basically that that's what our main focus is right now uh we have a dow that we want to build called foundry um and uh there's a lot to that i would love to talk about with that um, maybe the first thing to mention is our approach to building foundry is well, I, I, I don't think it's completely novel, but maybe we're the first ones to put a name to it and uh, to highly value it specifically. And that is this approach that we're calling a piecewise um, you know, uh, way of building a DAO, which is you don't build a whole set of smart contracts, audit them all at once, and then put it out there and then hope you know, that it works. That's what I would call the monolithic approach. And I would also say that that's what the, the DAO, the original DAO did. And I think that is what you could lay a lot of the disaster that followed from that approach. There was just this huge system, incredibly interdependent, and they 
you just can't reason about something that big. So in contrast, we're building different pieces and then hooking them up in different ways. And so the first thing we're building is the sale that's almost done. It's being audited right now. Uh, and there are, there are three total pieces that we see as necessary to a for-profit DAO. Um, and well, I'll just talk about that first because there's only one for-profit DAO, as far as I'm aware, that's successful at all, and that is MakerDAO. Uh, they they provide stability and they have their ways of extracting that fee, and then the maker holders actually you know gain, uh, gain from that. I'd argue um, that Moloch is a part of that group too. Well, but Moloch does not have a profit model. So I do like Moloch and I like the the fork, um, I keep forgetting the name, uh, Metacartel. Uh, and actually they, we, we've done a lot of thinking about those two. And, and certainly don't get me wrong, they are, um, they are valuable uh, explorations and, and they do what they do well. And I think they prove a lot about DAOs and about the viability of DAOs that's quite encouraging. However, I wouldn't really call those two for profit. Okay. Um, they they get investments and they spend the investments wisely, which which itself is an accomplishment that I'm I'm very uh, encouraged by. But they don't they haven't really yet built anything that makes them profit. Uh, now with Foundry, what we're building, we already have a smart contract system that extracts a fee, and that's DieHard. DieHard takes a one percent fee of everything. And, uh, and so now sort of the question we, we approached was how do we DAOify that? Because as you say, we don't really want to be managing this directly because if this does get big, we don't want to be the pilots of this, of this thing because that would just bring a, a lot of unwanted pressure. And so, so we thought a lot about this and we see there's three main pieces to a for-profit DAO. The first one is of course the sale. I mean, the sale brings in funding, but it also decentralizes the control, which both, I mean, it's almost the second one that's more important to us, or at least that was the original motivation. We we need that decentralized control because we want to honestly say, look, we don't control this thing anymore. Uh, but then obviously the funding is nice too, and they go hand in hand. You know, the people come in with their money, they become token holders, and, and now we have decentralized control uh, over a, a large pile of funding. So that's great. That's the first piece. Um, the second piece is the buyback mechanism. Um, well, that's what we're calling it, but it, more generally, you could say it's the profit exit mechanism. And it kind of operates in the reverse as the token sale. So with the token sale, with any token sale, people come in with money, whether it's Ether or in our case, DAI, and then they 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 give the money and what they get is tokens. Uh, in our case, it's uh, we're calling the tokens Fry, F-R-Y, which is a shortening of Foundry. So they get Fry. Uh, the buyback mechanism does the reverse, where people can bring their Fry to this buyback mechanism. They burn the Fry, and what they get in return is any they get a proportion of the accumulated profit of the products that Foundry is is running. Um, and by, I think by the time you guys release this podcast, we will have a schematic on that, on that link, the diehard.io slash info, which visualizes a lot of this. So hopefully that will make it a little easier to follow. But, um, anyways, that's the first two. There's the, the bucket sale. Sorry. We're calling it the bucket sale because it's, well, we don't need to get into that right now. We can come back to it. There's the sale. There's the buyback or the profit exit mechanism. So that means the token holders can actually capture some of the profit that they are uh, do because of their decision making. And then that brings us to the third thing, which is governance. And so those are the three pieces that we see as being necessary. And um, we can talk about those in detail, but my first point that I wanna make 
is that there's no reason actually to develop them all at once and release them all at once and hope it works. So instead we're going to launch the bucket sale as it is. And then we have sort of placeholders for the buyback and for the governance. The governance, for example, is just a multi-sig right now. And then the key here is that the relationships between these contracts can be switched, first of all. And then, and then second of all, when everything seems stable, that power to switch the relationships can be burned. Um, and so just to give a concrete example to that, as I said, Die Hard makes a profit. When, that, when it makes a profit, it sends it to what we call a redirector contract. That redirector contract can reassign who is going to get that contract, but it can also at any moment sort of irrevocably cement itself to send the, the profit to a particular contract. So at any time in the future, we can actually say, you know what? The diehard profit mechanism pointing to this other contract, which in the current formulation is the buyback mechanism, we could say that looks solid enough. So we're going to cement that now and you know, irrevocably say that all diehard profit now goes to this buyback mechanism, which, which is really just saying it goes to the Bry token holders. So yeah, I, I went over quite a bit there, but the main thing I want to talk about is just that piecewise way of building DAOs, because it, it seems to us that it's much safer, you can go much quicker, and the the auditing is is far less immense. Those are all reasonable ways of approaching this. Um, there are certainly ways in which that can go wrong, but you've built in um, the ability to be able to handle things when they go wrong, which others might misconstrue as centralized power to something. But that's, I guess that's one of those kind of arguments that most people have now when trying to build something is release control over time as things show that they work through um, use case and experience and 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 a, and a point i'd like to make is that in it so today every it is, it is centralized because we are building the thing we are the centralized component so it, it, i think it makes much more sense to iterate towards decentralization um than to try to make that jump i mean you can make this huge jump which just has so much uncertainty in it and with smart contracts that is extremely scary or you can make these small iterations and make sure everything works before you try to improve upon it. Uh, so and another thing I'll say also is that the token sale we're doing will run over a year. So over that year, not only will we be sort of, you know, putting a piece down and putting another piece down and maybe switching something out and moving slowly towards decentralization in that way, but also our tokens our token share will start at 100% and then it will dilute um, over a year to 30%. So it's sort of what I, my point there is in two separate ways, we will be gradually approaching the decentralized ideal. A lot can happen in a year. Why'd you choose a year? That's a good question. Um, well, you know, so we have yet to actually release any documentation about this. So a lot of it has yet to be cemented. Um, but the year, you know, it's just something we sort of threw a dart at and we said, that sounds good. And we haven't really had any reason to doubt it. I mean, I I would not be comfortable making it happen in a month or two months, just to give an extreme example, because there are so many unsolved problems with governance. Uh, 
And um, any longer than that would be much, well, it'd be too long for me. I, I, I don't want to wait that long for this thing to be, uh, you know, out of my control where I'm not the leader anymore. Yeah. I am, I am also like curious, like how like you need users. You have to have users for any of this to work. And right now getting users is difficult across the board for anything in cryptocurrency. Yes. Yeah. I don't even own die. Like I, I don't, I've never owned die. I've never owned a single die. A lot of people in um, Ethereum do. You're not, I don't think you're, I'm, you're I'm, in that I group. agree. Well, the thing is like, there's not a lot of people in Ethereum, like in general, yeah. like, like the, the adoption for your system is completely coupled with the adoption for Ethereum. Um, and, and Ethereum is just one cryptocurrency of many. Yes, it is number two. Um, and so the, the, uh, the, the adoption of cryptocurrency is essential for what you're trying to prove uh, as a concept. And I think uh, I, I, I'm wondering if I'm in my head, I'm kind of wondering, you know, whether or not, whether or not Ethereum takes off, you know, would this concept survive in another ecosystem? And I think it might. So I'm, I'm curious to see how this plays out and hope that we could build it um, in something that might be more long term. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess just to speak to Ethereum, you know, I, I'm not entirely 100% convinced. Well, in fact, I'm sure that it won't last in, in some sense, you know, Ethereum. But it, but but today it is by far the best concentration of not just developers, but, you know, and you could say that the developers are the users of Ethereum and that Ethereum has done a lot of real iteration because it has those real users. I know they're not end users and, and obviously that's to be you know, that's unfortunate, but, um, but you know, the, the way that they have iterated solidity and all of the problems that have come up and then been solved with smart contracts. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know my, my, what my point is here exactly, but I, I do think we will move on from Ethereum, but I also think it's almost a no brainer to work on Ethereum today. And I also question, suspect that that question is relevant values locked up. And I, I think, I think what you do is great. What I'm trying to think, say, and what I, what I probably, sorry to cut you off by the way. Um, mm. that's, a, that's generally an interviewer faux pas, but is what I just <laughs> to clarify is that I'm not, I'm not hating on Ethereum in, in any way. Um, it's just that, um, right now, everything in this space, be it Bitcoin, be it Ethereum, be it, geez, I don't care, Litecoin, uh, they're all yeah. kind of in this, still in this really early proof of concept stage and the user experience on all of these systems is just abysmal. Um, yeah. and, uh, it can't handle the volume and yada, yada, yada. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when, when things get better. Um, and that's the hopefulness. And I'm really glad that people like you are doing the work now to show what works later. Um, and how those things that work now can benefit by upgrades, perhaps ETH 2.0, perhaps some other system, perhaps the Cosmos network, um, and, uh, perhaps Ava, uh, <laughs> and, uh there it is. <laughs> 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 but you know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how how it all kind of like plays out in the long run, and um, I I think uh, I, I think that um, this has teeth. Um, I'm not sure what that those teeth will bite into, but this has teeth, and I want to see where it kind of plays out. So I'm grateful that you're doing this work. To add on to that, um, because we have all of this uncertainty, all of us do. Um, it's important to build in the ability to port if you need to. Um, trans the transfer of value to a different network uh, yeah. is is going to be, I think, an important quality in projects over the next five to ten years. 
because you need to go where the users are, regardless of whatever that's on. It doesn't matter. Like you can't choose yeah. where you build stuff based on your ideology of a specific technology. That's not that's not yeah. going to work for for servicing end users who really need something. And so if you build something that's stuck on stuck on a particular platform, you may be locked into a bad decision of a specific platform. But if you build it in such a way where you can port to where you need to port when you need to do it, then you're never locked in that way. But you can take advantage of whatever specific, um, I guess, the dominance that thing has at, a, at any given time. Yeah, well, well, it's interesting you bring that up now. It actually touches on a, um, a lot of interesting connections there. So, so one thing is I was going to say earlier uh, that one of the other use cases we might target is actually crypto to crypto trades because you can use DieHard to go from Die to any any currency, and that could include other cryptocurrencies. So that could include any other blockchain that comes up. Um, and another another connection that occurred to me is. Well, to some degree, what you're talking about is the importance of being able to exit. And and I, I think you maybe meant this more at a protocol level, but I think it also applies to just to, to the more general uh, idea of being able to exit. And um, so in Zimbabwe, for example, if we want this thing to work, we have to ensure that people can exit the system. Because if you, you know, if I come up to some Zimbabwe and I, and I send them two die and I say it's two dollars, it's not really two dollars unless they can actually get it out quickly and easily then it's then it's real then they know it's real and and i i think that in general with crypto you know we were talking about getting to those end users i mean that's really that's really uh, we need to make crypto useful right and one of the things that that detracts from crypto's utility is is the difficulty in exiting you know like when i put my 200 us dollars into 200 die one of the consequences is that I cannot go to the store and buy bread, but it's actually worse than that because I can't even then go to an ATM and get cash out to buy bread. And if we could make it to where people can actually just exit crypto more easily, that would almost paradoxically um, uh, improve the utility of crypto because it's it, then it would feel almost like an international bank account. Uh, and so, so, so that's what we hope to solve with Die Hard. And, you know, it's, it's whenever I get most excited or whenever I miss, like, sometimes I'll be, I'll be doing my regular life stuff and I'll think like, fuck, you know, if, if die hard had use today, I could use it right now. It's 90% of the time. It's actually to exit. It's like I said, I'm landing in an airport and I want to uh, get local currency or it's like, I want to buy a steam game, but all my bank accounts are empty, but I have the cryptocurrency. And um, so if die hard or something like die hard, was available that just allowed people to exit quickly that I, I argue strongly that that would um, directly increase the utility of crypto because it would it would feel more like a bank account. You could spend it maybe not directly, but if indirectly, at least very quickly. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a cool idea. So, you know, yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, good job doing this. Uh, appreciate you making this. Um, I'm really uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where this all kind of plays out. Um, I, I really do feel like these, these, and I don't want to like say it's purely an experiment, but I do feel as though at this stage, everything is kind of purely an experiment. Um, yes. we're all, even, even MakerDAO, which is wildly successful is still very much in the global scheme of things an experiment and, um, they're profitable experiments, which is fantastic. They're economic experiments, which needs some skin in the game. Um, mm. and I, I love watching this all play out. And I think you have a very interesting project that if it can gain traction in any way, 
I would actually prefer the first world over the third world, to be frank with you. Um, mm. And uh, well, just to I speak would... to that. Well, huh? sorry, I already went over the TransferWise stuff, but uh, so yeah. go ahead. Yeah, no, because um, I want to use this. I want to see a reason for me to use this. Um, mm. And I don't live in Zimbabwe. I think there's a lot of interesting okay. features to what you're doing um, that could that could excite some industries that normally don't don't um, you know I, I mean I, I gave all these untoward examples but I'm sure there's there's I don't use any of those by the way just full disclosure but um, the uh, you know I think there's interesting ways to engage with people and services that would cut out the intermediary and that's kind of been the end goal for me in most of these, these, these decentralization parts is cut out that middleman. And I see things like Craigslist services being like possibly useful here. Um, and so, um, no, I think it's great. Um, I, I want to see where it plays out. So I really, I'm really grateful that you're building this. I think it's very much more developed than when we first heard about it. Um, her, mm. first heard about your system. Um, this, this is uh, much clearer and I, I think you're doing a great job. So thank you. Cool. Well, thanks for the interview, guys. It's it's been a pleasure and an opportunity. Yeah, and we'll link yeah. we'll definitely link uh, the, the the website. Is there is there any other place people should go to reach out, learn more, and potentially contribute or start participating? No, just just that one just that one uh, link, which it's just diehard.io/info. That that has all the links on it. I actually built it knowing that I would have this interview, so I wanted a, a place where people could go and see everything. So that has a link to the Zimdi paper, which. If I could direct anyone to any particular thing, I would say go there because it's it it really seems like a viable plan to spark something of a financial revolution. Only the only missing piece is funding and and leadership, which well, which which uh, maybe Foundry can do if it gets enough funding. But uh, but I would say that's the most exciting. Well, it's the most humanitarian exciting part of it. But there's lots lots of cool stuff there. So feel free to take a look. Great, thanks, Logan. We'll keep our eye out for it. Cool. Alrighty.